Good morning, church. Uh, yeah, as Jason was saying, I bring you greetings from Georgetown. I know you look at a guy like me and you're like, mm, I think he's from Scarborough. Uh, but uh, that's where I work. That's where I work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, we, uh, we remember your church and our prayers. In fact, this past, uh, this past Thursday in our prayer meeting, we prayed for you guys. And so we love you. And uh, yeah, it's a great privilege to, to be here bring, bringing forth God's word. So um, with that said, uh, let, me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, what, it, what a joy it is uh, to, to be here, God, and to worship with uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ uh, God, we sang some beautiful songs. Uh, Lord, we greeted one another uh, in the way in which your scripture commands us to greet one another. And now we are going to sit uh, before your holy scripture and hear uh, the word of the Lord. And uh, God, I, I am nothing. I am, I am a sinful man. I am a broken, weak vessel. Uh, but it's just, it's a perplexing thing, God, that you use weak, broken vessels to convey the message of the gospel. And so I pray that uh, what your people ultimately see is your son in all his glory, in all his splendor, uh, and not me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the feeling that precedes the outburst of anger on your wife. It's the butterflies that fester within your chest as you see your friends on social media purchase things you can't afford. It's the increased heartbeat that comes when you switch your internet browser to incognito and search for a website no man or woman ought to look for. It accompanies the gulp before the lie, the contemplation before the hangover, and the whisper before you consume more food than your stomach can handle at that moment. If you know what I'm talking about, then you know this is what we call temptation. This is a concept every Christian is well acquainted with. It's a concept I'm sure all Christians in this room would say with the unified voice, I hate it. John Owen, an old English theologian, defined temptation like this. Temptation is anything, state, way, or condition that, upon any account whatever, has a force or efficacy to seduce to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, into any sin, in any degree of it, whatever. For the duration of our Christian lives, you and I have felt the force of temptation. We've all been drawn away from the obedience we know we're called to, and we've given in to the disobedience we know we ought to avoid. So the truth is, when it comes to temptation, our lives have not been marked by a pattern of victory. Rather, they have been one of failure. Now, this typically leads to two types of responses. Either we plunge ourselves into the depths of despair because we feel like we will never succeed, or we get up, 
dust off our clothes and try to land a haymaker on what we continually proceed to do that leads us into sin. See, what we're going to see in Luke's gospel is this. The reason why you perpetually fail in the battle against temptation is because your approach is totally wrong. The key to overcoming temptation is to stop focusing on yourself, stop focusing on your failures, and stop focusing on your lack of strength and to place your focus on Christ, who we read about or we do read about in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Given that this is the very thing that precedes Luke's temptation narrative, we can't help but transport ourselves to the Garden of Eden, where God's son, Adam, was tempted. Adam, as we all know, fails to overcome temptation in Genesis chapter 3. But as our narrative unfolds, we will see where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And it's precisely his succession in the wilderness that provides us with hope. Those of us who fail to resist temptation, those of us who indulge within a moment's notice, those of us who don't even bother to put up a fight, it is the victory of Jesus Christ, the truer and better Son of God, who grants us hope in our time of need and reassurance in our moments of failure. So before we see Jesus' victory put on glorious display in three specific temptations he faces, before we behold the glorious parallels between Adam and Jesus Christ, let me clarify something about our Lord. As the Son of God, he was on a mission. A mission that required the Holy Spirit, which descended upon him during his baptism in chapter 3, verse 22. Where, and then so when we, when we come to chapter 4, Luke begins by saying this in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry is of utmost significance. The Spirit empowers Jesus for his mission, and the Spirit also guides him. But notice where he guides him, into the wilderness. For most of us, when we hear the word wilderness, we automatically think of Israel, right? Specifically, the period in Israel's history after they were set free from captivity in Egypt and wandered in the wilderness due to a lack of obedience unto Yahweh. A place where they didn't merely go for a stroll, as we know, but it was a place where they were tested. So, I'm sure you might be wondering, is, is Jesus being compared to Adam in our text, or is he, is he being compared to Israel? And that's a very valid question, since we read in verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. 
40 days harkens back to 40 years Israel wandered. And, uh, and this makes the connection all the more obvious, right? But, but the truth is, we don't have to choose necessarily, is, he, is it Adam or is it Israel? The, the reality is he's being compared to both, right? But if you read the Gospels, you'll see each Gospel will have different focuses. And I believe in Matthew's Gospel, he's focusing on Israel. In our Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, he's focusing on Adam and Jesus. Now, for 40 days, the text tells us Jesus was being tempted. And in other words, for 40 consecutive days, Jesus was being seduced to disobey God. For 40 days, the devil tried to get Jesus to slip up, to doubt, to question the certainty of God's will. Some of us can easily miss the language here. It wasn't like Jesus wandered in the wilderness unbothered for 40 days. Then the devil came for him. No, before Luke even gives us these three specific temptations of our text, Jesus had already been fighting temptation. See, you and I need to understand that at times, temptation is uncomfortably present. Whatever the temptation may be, it chases you like a hound every single day. It pesters you to give in like Delilah pestered Samson in Judges 16. It it pleads with you to partake in its wickedness like Potiphar's wife did with Joseph in Genesis 39. As a fellow man and brother in Christ to you guys, trust me, I know this all too well. And I hate it. I hate it. In those moments, it feels like it won't go away, right? And because of that feeling, it almost becomes slightly justifiable to throw in the towel. But Jesus shows us in just one verse, one verse, the relentless nature of temptation is no excuse for us to quit relentlessly resisting. Christ never caved in the midst of those 40 days. And because he didn't, we possess what's necessary to remain steadfast as well. The end of verse 2 informs us that Jesus fasted in those 40 days. David Garland notes that 40 days is equated with 40 years of wandering in Numbers 14, verse 34. Now, Just like any of us, right, after those 40 days, we be hungry. Now, some of you are, like, going to pass out if you miss out on one meal, right? I'm so hungry. I didn't have my overnight oats. Oh, my gosh, right? Like, come on, right? Jesus didn't eat for 40 days, okay? That's a hunger none of us know, right? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure none of us have fasted for 40 days, but Jesus did. But Jesus did. Not a sip of water to quench his thirst. Not a piece of bread to appease his appetite. You better believe that Jesus, though fully God, felt a rumbling in his stomach like any of us would because of his humanity. It's while Jesus remained in a state of being famished that the devil comes for him again. 
And this sets us up for the first specific temptation outlined in Luke. And, and, it, and it, it beckons us to ask, how will Jesus fare with the devil compared to Adam in the garden? This leads us to our first point. As the better Adam, Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the Father's provision. As the better Adam, Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the Father's provision. Take a look at verses 3 to 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The specific word used to describe the devil here is meant to tell us that he is a misrepresenter and slanderer, according to James Edwards. And it's important for us to keep this in our minds. I definitely stand by what I said at the start, that Christ is the key to overcoming temptation. But there are things for us to know and do that will supplement us in our fight against temptation. One of those things is having a firm grasp on our enemy. Wars are not won by simply cultivating the right strategy. Football teams do not go home with the win by just rigorously training on the gym and on the field. No, in both scenarios, understanding who opposes them is vital. So it is with us, the devil, and the realm of temptation. Thomas Watson exhorts us to be aware of two things regarding the devil and temptation. First, he tells us of his violence in tempting, which is why he is the red dragon. He labors to storm the castle of the heart. He throws in thoughts of blasphemy. He tempts to deny God. These are fiery darts he shoots by which he would inflame the passions. The second is his subtlety in temptation. That's not really sin, is it? Are you aware of his ways? Are you even aware that you have such an enemy that wants to destroy you? Just like he came for Adam in the garden, he comes for Jesus in the wilderness. He begins with what seems to be an inquiry regarding Jesus' sonship. But, but the truth is, Jesus had no need to prove his sonship. It's already been proven at this point in Luke's gospel. Satan knows Jesus is the true son of God. So his goal in tempting him is not for the sake of convincing, but for the sake of derailing the path set for Christ by the Father. And one of the ways Satan tries to derail Jesus' path is by exploiting his sonship. Hey, Jesus, you're hungry, man. You're like really hungry. You're in the wilderness. There's, there's no shops to grab a quick bite. Just take the stones in front of you. Turn them into bread. Even we as readers are forced to think for a minute. Like, wait. What's so sinful about turning some stones into bread to appease one's hunger, especially, especially if you had the power to do so? What's up with that? What's wrong with that? See, the issue here is not so much about having his need met. It's about who meets his need. 
By rejecting the first temptation posed towards him, Jesus resists to act independently of the Father's power and provision. Which is why he responds in verse 4 by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. In its context, Moses was helping the Israelites recall that God was ultimately the source of their hunger in the wilderness or their provider in the wilderness. And though he said he would provide for them faithfully through manna, he didn't want their trust to be in the manna itself right? He wanted their trust to be in him and his daily decision to ordain manna from heaven. For that is the word that came out of his mouth, his decision to provide for them in order that they may live. So, when Jesus claps back in, in, with Deuteronomy 8.3, what he's trying to say in a nutshell is this. I trust in my father's provision. I trust in every word that comes out of his mouth. When he sees fit, he will provide for me. Here's the thing. The problem with so many of us is that we call the shots on what we need and how we obtain that need. That could actually be like human necessities, like money and food, or they could be things like things that we think we need. But regardless of what the need is, what becomes so sinister is how we want to satisfy those needs without God in the picture. This is how you get students who drown themselves in school and extracurricular activities. They devote themselves to their textbooks, study groups, and practices. But when it comes to seeking the Lord, finding five minutes to open the Bible is a stretch. Prayer turns into a foreign concept. And getting involved in church is way too big of an ask. This is how you get men and women who drown themselves in work, working towards that six-figure salary or more, cultivating side hustle after side hustle, and then they pat themselves on the shoulder because at least they come to church once a week. But everything outside of that is virtually non-existent. This is how you get single Christian men and women who decide to improvise when it comes to finding a spouse and they date, or worse, marry someone who is not a believer. Commenting on this problem, Dale Ralph Davis echoes my heart so well. He says, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about our needs, nor am I denying that we have genuine needs and so on. So don't overread me, and in my case, don't overhear me. But because our present Western culture, especially our psychologically saturated culture, pummels us about our needs and harps on how important and legitimate and proper they are and about how urgent it is to have them met, you may so elevate your needs that they become your idol and God becomes your servant who must take care of and tend to your idol. 
Your culture, and sometimes even your church culture will seldom say to you, wait in the wilderness and see what God will do for you. So church, you've got needs. You've got needs. Genuine ones too. Maybe it's time you stop trying to obtain them in your own way and out of your own strength. Maybe it's time you wait in the wilderness and see what God will do for you. This may rarely be our disposition But it certainly was the disposition of Christ. He trusted in the Father's provision. And unlike Adam who ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, Jesus refused to eat bread by resisting the temptation to transform those stones. And unwilling to back off, the devil tempts Jesus again. And this leads us to our second point. As the better Adam, Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the Father's plan. As the better Adam, Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the Father's plan. Listen to verses 5 to 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. At first, it seems like the devil literally took Jesus somewhere really high up, but the language which denotes the speed of what happens here implies this was more of a vision. And in this vision, the devil promises to give Jesus authority over basically the whole world. All Jesus has to do is bow down to the devil, or as the text says, worship him, worship him. What's interesting is that what the devil promises to give, God already promised to Jesus. In Psalm 2, one that would, we would describe as a messianic psalm, we read this in verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, why is the devil promising something that's already coming for Jesus? And, and since did, when did the devil have authority? Now, remember, he's the misrepresenter. He is the father of lies and the master of half-truths. In John 14, verse 30, Jesus describes him as the ruler of this world. So he does possess a certain degree to an authority, Right? But, but at the end of the day, he submits to the all-encompassing greater authority of God. The devil is, as some would say, God's devil. It feels like the enticement of this temptation is severely lacking, especially because refusing the worship of the devil was a no-brainer for Jesus. But here's where we can clearly see the subtlety of temptation, What the devil tries to do here is not simply offer Jesus all the power in the world by having him bow down before him. What he's actually trying to do is offer Jesus the crown before the cross. 
He tries to derail Jesus' mission by promising the reward of the mission without accomplishing the mission itself. We see this kind of stuff all the time. Advertisements that promise you 10K within a month if you just follow these steps. Dietary products that ensure you a flatter stomach within weeks. But, but Jesus knew very well that there are no shortcuts to glory. Before the amazing reality of Philippians 2, 10 to 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus understood and submitted to the prerequisite of verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Jesus responds to the devil in this temptation with Deuteronomy 6.13, not only is he restating his allegiance to God, the Father, but he's also aligning himself with the Father's plan. A plan that does not include shortcuts, but it does promise glory. So this is a wake-up call for all of us who embrace a life of ease and comfort. We want relationships without pursuing. We want money without working. We want community without conversing. We want obedient children without disciplining. We want fit bodies without exercising. And as it specifically pertains to the Christian life, we want growth without seeking God's face in his word. We want entrance into heaven without suffering for Christ on earth. Our Savior did not take any shortcuts to glory, so neither should we. But that's not all there is to it, is it? See, we can try to take shortcuts in this life and maybe receive some kind of glory, but it pales in comparison to the actual path that God wants us to walk. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's not merely a matter of, of, about rejecting the shortcuts to glory, but questioning the very essence of those shortcuts and where they lead. Jesus picked up on the subtlety of this temptation. He understood what the devil was trying to do. He knew he couldn't actually deliver on what he, on what he so-called promised Christ for all of Satan's promises end in disaster. Thomas Watson put it this way. Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But God, but God pays as he promises for all his payments are made in pure gold. If you want to avoid even nibbling on the bait of Satan's false promises, then simply place all of your trust in God. Because even if Satan's promises are just a slight deviation from God's promises, they will not give you what God can and will. So trust him. 
trust him. Jesus knew all of his father's promises were paid in pure gold, so he trusted in his plan. He reserved his worship for his father alone, not the devil. Yet again, he stands distinguished from Adam for in partaking of the forbidden fruit. That was Adam's way of laying claim to authority, authority that didn't even belong to him. Jesus, on the other hand, refused to take a shortcut to glory and claim authority, authority that was already promised to him. Now in the third temptation, the devil will try to undo the son of God's mission again. And just like the first two times, he will fail. This brings us to our last point. As the better Adam, Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the father's protection. As the better Adam, Jesus overcomes temptation by trusting the father's protection. Verses 9 to 12. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. With his two attempts shot down, the devil tries to get a little more creative with the third one. And out of all the places he could take Jesus, he chooses to take him to the temple. The original language informs us that he was, so, he, he, he was specifically taken to the wingtip, which is the highest and most exposed point. And it's where the devil offers his third temptation. But before we get to that, I, I don't want us to miss the significance of being tempted at the temple. The places we think we'll be tempted to least are the places where Satan can tempt us the most. Yes, you can be tempted at church. You can be tempted at church. It's not off boundaries. Some of the most severe assaults of temptation that I have faced have taken place in my office at church. Beloved, stay alert. Stay alert. No matter where you are, do not let your guard down just because you think temptation is off limits in that particular area. As Jesus stared down the pinnacle of the temple, the devil more or less was telling him, jump, just jump. And according to the devil's logic, because Jesus is the son of God, if he jumps, God will send his angels rushing to his aid to save him. And to strengthen the persuasiveness of his temptation, he quotes from the good book itself, the Bible. The text of his choice was Psalm 91, 11 to 12. But like all false teachers, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you take it out of context. This is why as ridiculous as the prosperity gospel is, the teaching that strongly emphasizes God's desire, chief desire for you to be financially and physically prosperous, this, this fake gospel sells, right? It still sells because it's supported by dozens and dozens of passages of scripture that are taken out of context. I find it strange how 
Very rarely I hear the book of Job quoted by prosperity teachers, but I digress. Jesus was on to what the devil was doing in that moment, and rather than pointing out the fact that he misquoted Psalm 91, Jesus thought it would be better to recite a verse from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put your God to the test. A continued reading of that verse indicated that testing took place at a place called Massa. And according to Exodus 17, 7, Massa was where Israel questioned if God was with them or not in the wilderness. And Jesus seamlessly teaches us two things by doing this. Number one, by quoting, uh, by qu- quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus was pointing out how the devil was putting God to the test. And two, God's word, understand rightly, is one of the greatest sources of ammunition in the fight against temptation. Of course, if you've been paying attention, you know this is nothing new at this point in the passage. Verse 4, it is written. Verse 8, it is written. Verse 12, it is said. Knowing and articulating scripture can be such a powerful tool, especially in times when you're in temptation, especially in times when you're tempted to put God to the test. God, if you love me, then you'll answer this prayer request of mine. God, if you really cared about me, you won't let suffering happen to me. God, God, if you are for me, then you'll increase my salary. Listen, church, don't test God's character in light of your subjective, sin-saturated agenda. That's not the way. Instead, reassure yourself based upon the objectivity of his word. For what was written is enough. It's enough. With this last quotation of scripture against the devil, Jesus dismantles him again. In so doing, he successfully avoids putting God to the test in the wilderness. Whereas in the garden, Adam put God to the test by buying into Satan's foolish rhetoric, did God really say Jesus knew what he said, which is why he didn't need to jump to know that God will protect him. His refusal to jump also demonstrated that as the son of God, he will not use sensations and spectacles to drive his ministry. A ministry that the devil wasn't quite done trying to derail, for we read this kind of ominous verse at the end of our passage, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. The devil may have ended his barrage of temptations here, but he was going to try his luck again in the future. And on the surface, that appears to be a cause for concern. But the reality is, even in the so-called opportune times that precede the events of Luke 4, the devil is found to be unsuccessful. He's found to be unsuccessful because where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus was victorious in the wilderness. The odds were stacked against him environmentally, physically, emotionally, and and yet he still prevailed against the devil's temptations, and that remained a pattern for the rest of his life. (laughs) 
Not only did Jesus conquer temptation here, but he conquered every temptation that led up to his death on a cross. A death that we deserve for the temptations we've given into. A death for all the temptations we're still giving into. Jesus died in our place and rose again three days later, signifying this incredibly hopeful invitation. All who turn away from their sin and put their trust in the better Adam will not only be forgiven of their sins, but they're also given a newfound power to fight against temptation. Listen, because the Son of God stood victorious in our place, we can be victorious over the temptations that plague us and derail us from our relationship with God. So if you're here today struggling to overcome your addiction to pornography, if you're here today struggling to fight for your marriage, if you're here today enslaved to crippling anxiety, if you're here today unable able to resist lashing out in anger. Listen, if you're here today and you need a savior, well, his name is Jesus Christ, the son of God. He's the reason why no matter what your relationship with temptation is at this very moment, your future is full of hope, full of hope. As a result of trusting in the Father's provision, plan, and protection, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness and subsequently overcame the grave. So look to him. Trust in him. For it is through the God-man, the true son, the better Adam, that we can overcome the temptations that come our way until we enter into glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are everything we are not. God, we don't need to think about if we were put in those scenarios. We have already experienced similar scenarios in our own lives, in our own ways, and we have failed. We have failed. We have failed so many times that... We can't even recall all the times we have given into temptation. But Lord, this morning, you're not calling us to just feel condemned, to just think about all the ways in which we failed and then leave this church thinking we are utter failures and there's no victory. No, the point of these, these Sundays, the point of opening up your word and beholding Christ is to know that because the better Adam succeeded, we can have victory we can be forgiven. We can overcome. Union with Christ gives us the strength, this power, this hope over the sins that plague us. Oh God, I pray that today you would break shackles. People who feel enslaved to sin, that's been my prayer, is that they would leave here free free because they're looking to the better Adam. They're approaching temptation in a way that is not focused on self, but focused on Christ. Oh Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.